Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Brian Bieschke and Jim Van Tygum onto the show to discuss the human aspects in reliability. We talk about why it's important to connect with your people and the output of reliability in that equation. If you have any questions, if you have any projects, if you have any struggles with your reliability program, I am offering reliability coaching. So if that's something that appeals to you, if you have any reliability problems, if you have any help that you need from me, I'm offering various consulting packages. So if you are interested in hearing more about those, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or send me a message on LinkedIn and I will definitely share those with you. I really appreciate you guys listening. And here's the interview with Jim and Brian. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Today we have two special guests. We have Jim Van Tygum from Associated Materials. Jim, how are you? Great. And you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we have Brian Bieschke from Host Terminals. Brian, how are you? I'm great, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for joining us today. Now, before we get into it, both of you guys are new to the show, new to the audience. So, Brian, you're filling up the screen. So why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Like, how'd you get started in reliability? And like, where'd you come from? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I started out um, like a lot of people. Uh, I went to college. Uh, I dropped out of college. It uh, wasn't, wasn't my thing. Um, and I, I went to an automotive school to just to be an automotive mechanic. Uh, it's called Barron Institute of Technology. It was actually in uh, Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Um, this was like 2005, 2006. Um, and I went and became a automotive mechanic working in a shop, a, a privately owned shop, small shop in my, in my neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, in 2008, uh, when the recession really hit, the, I, was not, I was laid off. You know, I, I didn't have a job anymore. Um, that business went under for a little while and fortunately it resurfaced about a few years ago, but uh, I joined the Navy um, and I became a GSC troubleshooter uh, on the flight deck of the USS George Washington CVN 73. Um, there are four GSC troubleshooters on every carrier out of 6,000 people. Um, and they are the people who troubleshoot, maintain and repair all of the support equipment used to execute flight operations from cranes, generators, forklifts, tractors, uh, oxygen units, nitrogen units, um, everything you can think of. It's all done real time during flight operations. So that was awesome. I loved it. Um, I made E5, found out once if I made E6 that I was no longer going to be allowed to be a troubleshooter. Uh, so I didn't want that. I wanted to stay turning wrenches. Um, so I got out after a little over four years and my standard duty. Um, that was in Yokosuka, Japan. I was forward deployed all four years. Um, and then I went to work for Caterpillar. Uh, I worked for a, uh, a dealer called Alban Tractor in Maryland. And, uh, I was a, a machine technician for them for a little over two years. 
Uh, I got hired away to be uh, a material handling mechanic uh, for a company called Mathi, where we did a lot of Lindy uh, forklift. We were a Lindy forklift dealer. Um, we also did a lot of other combi lifts and you know things like that. I was a field mechanic for them. Um, and then the Navy, you know, before I started at host and, you know, just kind of reverting back, the Navy is what really instilled, especially the flight deck, um, the need to control variability in what you're doing. Um, and, and the big thing the Navy the military in general drives home to you is procedure uh, and making sure that the way I do a job is the same way that Billy does a job or Jimmy does the job. And, um, that was huge. You know, we have the NAMP, which is the Naval Aviation and Maintenance Program book. It's five feet thick and they make us, they drive it into your head and, you know, you have to know every, you have to get certified on every machine you touch and you have to know all that stuff. So that was the very beginning. I think that's what planted the seed. And then once I came into the civilian world, turning wrenches, I saw that a lot of people um, don't care about that. <laughs> uh, they, they care about what they were um, taught or brought into. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went and worked for host. Host terminals hired me away from MathI uh, to be uh, an equipment manager, uh, which quickly turned into uh, developing the entire maintenance program at host across five or six terminals from hiring technicians, setting up the shop, um, continuous improvement, uh, deploying a CMMS program to the company, uh, failure analysis, all those things, um, and being the one who is uh, accountable for all those things, and I, I take great pride in accountability, I knew that I had to have a way to standardize the things that we did from a maintenance standpoint, and um, rely what better than, you know, RCM, right? Um, so I started reading, I read Ramesh Galati's uh, <laughs> Reliability Best Practices and, uh, and um, uh, Ron Moore's Making Common Sense, Common Practice, which is awesome. I love that book. Um, and uh, I started drawing upon my experiences and working with my team and learning about what makes technicians tick and what do they value. Um, and I ended up taking my CMRP uh, exam, which I again I, I was very nervous because I didn't come from a manufacturing background um, none of those things were very popular in my um, in my uh, my career so you know I, I was at a disadvantage but I studied tremendously I drew upon the the, the, the things that I've learned and um, I read a lot of things that you guys post in your articles and you know uh, I wanted that accreditation I wanted to be able to say that my fundamental knowledge and reliability had been tested against the standard. That's really was, was it, you know, um, I don't tote it. I'm not, you know, one of those people, uh, I care more about my team and, and where they fit into the picture. Um, and that's like Jim and I, we had a conversation on the way home. I was driving home and we were like two little girls just giggling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, when you, you know, you invited me to come on the podcast, I was like, man, you know, this is, this is going to be sweet. I, I don't, I don't claim to know it all. Um, but I do like, just like Jim, I have a kind of a different outlook. I hope a lot of people share the same outlook that we have. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, just that I'm just, I say I'm a mechanic. That's what I am. Uh, I just happen to be, uh, in my role. Um, but, uh, 
on top of that, I view myself as I'm a leader first. I just happen to be in maintenance. You know, that's, that's the way it's I actually, see it. you, you know, it's funny, Brian, you, you say that you're a leader first and it's something that I've actually been trying to come to terms with too is, and I probably actually until probably about, you know, six, seven months ago, I didn't actually consider myself a leader. I kind of came at it with that old school mentality about, you know, needing this power structure in the facility and, you know, my, basically my career, I've never supervised anybody ex- outside of like a couple co-op students or an engineer. And so it's something that I'm sort of promoting. And I know Michelle, who's also on the call, and you should check out her book if you haven't yet as well. But um, it's something that we in industry and we as reliability professionals needs, need to believe and see in ourselves. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I know it's probably informal leadership and there's also the other pieces about being a leader in your own life. And Jim will, will jump into you about that. But, but if we're not taking accountability and, and being and perceiving ourselves as leaders, I just think we fall flat. It, 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 it really, you know, and Jim and I talked about this um, and, and we agree, you know, there's so much priority put on being a technical expert in the field of reliability. Oh, I, I employed this. I know more vibration. I know this, you know, that all is fantastic. And, and, and I think it's great. And I'm learning more and more uh, every day about those, those aspects, but it really doesn't mean anything if the guy who's out there at three o'clock in the morning doing that job doesn't understand where he fits in that picture and why, why is it important that this knowledge, these technologies are employed? Um, you know, that's, that's, what everything that I do in maintenance, I come back to that. It's like, yes, it's great. We're smart. We can do cool stuff, but that guy needs to know where he fits in that picture. What, how does it affect him? He, like Jim put it great on the phone, man. He is, I don't want to say an asset cause that's kind of, you know, but he's, he is a component of a, of a more holistic thing that's being stressed and we need to learn to, uh, to mitigate it like we would any other failure. Um, and 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 build them up and 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 allow them to fit in what we want and and where the organization needs to be because asset performance is directly proportional to maintainer performance and i don't mean that from a technical standpoint i mean that from a technician showing up the best person they can be the present self that they can be to do to, to do their job they could be the most technical proficient guy in the world but if he sh- if he has a bad day or a bad night or he's going through a divorce or we just worked him 15 hours a night before do you think that highly skilled technician is present in that that current function i would say no i would say that his his technical prowess is depleted because of that you know so i'll shut up but uh yeah <laughs> i was so happy talking to jim man he you know just like-minded uh thought process there and he's been doing it way way longer than i've been thinking about it so I love it. We better, Jim, tell us, tell us about yourself before we just get off on a train here. (laughs) No, I'm enjoying listening. It's fantastic. That's great mindset, Brian. And Rob, I already knew you were a leader before you did. I'm sure you did. (laughs) Um, I started my career uh, as an auto mechanic, actually, Brian. I started in the 80s as a class A auto mechanic and truck and coach mechanic. So, you know, I took a lot of those skill sets when I started an industrial career in 1988, 
I took a lot of those same skill sets into the workplace. I knew nothing about machinery, nothing about manufacturing, but I did know how to talk to people because in my business at that time, you had to fix the customer before you fix the vehicle. Because most of the time, it wasn't a vehicle issue, it was an operator issue. Right. So that's how I started. And at the same breath, uh, I instantly uh, uh, got acclimated into uh, the industrial world and talk about reactive maintenance, massive <laughs> amounts of it. Yep. And uh, so I climbed the ladder quite quickly. I became a uh, maintenance tech. I was a production supervisor for a bit, actually, and then maintenance manager. And after uh, uh, we, our company decided to get a CMMS system, and I happened to be looking for one because I was tired of paper systems. I was tired of it's broke, I fixed it. I wanted to see a problem cause action. In the 90s, I wanted to see all of this on a piece of equipment at, at my fingertips. So I dug into a CMMS system we had, which was actually a, uh, a standalone version of the Maximal Enterprise that is now out there by PSDI. Long story short, I graduated myself up to a corporate level. So I was working for a Fortune 500 glass company. So I was responsible through a, uh, a special service group to basically senior, to be the senior consultant and implementation manager, support manager for the CMMS system, the 60 plants global. And at the same breath, I designed a, uh, a program, a training program, five-day hands-on CMMS system. But we didn't talk about uh, just putting data in. We talked about why you put data in. So it was really exciting. I must have trained over eight, 800, 900 people worldwide. And what I found that was the most interesting for me is it wasn't about fixing equipment. It wasn't about gathering and, and doing PMs and so on and so forth. My concern was why do people do what they do? If you know what you're supposed to do, why are you not doing it? So at the time, Tony Robbins was big with neurolinguistic programming. So I read his book and uh, I started to apply some social experiments and lo and behold, we found some interesting things and trends from 30 years ago that still exist today. And that said, my career had spanned over a bit of time being in the, uh, working for Guardian Industries for quite some time. And then of course they closed their doors. And through that uh, little uh, episode, I worked in various places as service manager, maintenance manager, operations manager, uh, production manager, so on. And then I ended up with a company I'm with, uh, that I'm with now. And I started as a maintenance manager two years ago. And then uh, I was asked to work for a corporate office and basically take care of the maintenance management implementation, reliability-centered uh, maintenance portion of it. And of course, um, uh, I work for the Continuous Improvement Group. So that said, I've been on a long journey. Now, the biggest journey that I'm on right now is like Rob. I have a fantastic coach. I finally, if it wasn't for Rob, I wouldn't have met her, Susan Hobson. And the reason that uh, I mention her is as I'm working away, working on reliability center maintenance and maintenance, as you and I broke, uh, spoke about, Brian, the key was that there is really no difference between fixing a piece of equipment or fixing a human being. Applying reliability maintenance and maintenance in general is exactly the same thing. We're nouns, right? Person, place, or thing. The same principles we use for fixing equipment or maintaining, or as uh, Bob uh, Latino would say, the holistic approach to, to reliability, it's the same approach with humans. It's not getting the work done that's the hard part, it's getting people to do the work that's the difficult part. And so through this whole experience and having a life coach myself and a very 
uh, a very good coach that is, um, it's opened and broadened my horizons on why and understanding why we do what we do because we have to start with ourselves first. If you're not the example of, or if you're not taking ownership of your own life and becoming the leader of your own life first, it's really hard to go out and be a leader to others, being the coach, being that uh, mentor as Rob had said. We gotta get away from the buzzwords of managers and bosses and lead hands. They don't mean anything in the long run. So it's very interesting to, um, to follow this path and see all the examples that rush through your mind as you open your mind to it. In, the, in our mind, it's called the reticular activating system. It's a portion of the mind where you put these filters in and then that filter goes out and it looks for all these examples. Well, if you start to uh, delve into this and you start looking at equipment and people, it doesn't take long to start to see where all the problems arise. And also from there, it's now trying to find resolve. And the resolve really is in the people. People make things happen. So that's been kind of my, my uh, goal and uh, the uh, 30 years of prep work to get to this point to be able to talk with you and, uh, and go on about this topic. So I didn't know what you wanted to address here, Rob, if you wanted to get into some of the, the semantics of what we do with reliability and the human side of it. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, but we can sure nail it down in a Reader's Digest condensed version for you. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, I, what I wanted to talk today about was about that, I mean, we called this human connection and reliability, but it's basically that same point, right? And it, I think we've all sort of came to the same conclusion. And, you know, throughout my career working in reliability, and then also like hosting this podcast, like we've been going for over two years now and having these conversations with world class experts the common thread that I've seen throughout this whole time is the questions that come in are, how do we get buy-in? I know what I'm supposed to do, but how do I actually get my manager to see it? How do I get my guys to see it? How do I get budget for it? How do I change culture? And the more, the more I've seen those questions, and I didn't really have an answer for like why that was until a few months ago, but, mm -hmm. but it's like, that's kind of the theme that we've seen through two years of this podcast and, you know, 10 years cool. of my career. So let's dig a little bit more into that. And maybe, maybe Brian, let's start off with you. Like, you know, you've done some pretty big implementations like a CMMS or RCM. Like, where did you start with those? Like, how did you go about getting those projects or like implementing those projects? Yeah. So um, I would say the, Aside from the CMMS program, the the I mean, it's, it's no it's, it's obvious. Like the the biggest thing there is the culture, uh, and I'm I'm overseeing. I'm the director of maintenance and reliability. By the way, I didn't even say that. <laughs> so uh, so all the maintenance uh, programs in different locations around the uh, country, um, their top management reports to me, and and I'm I align. I try to align um, all of these these satellite places to make sure that we're doing the same things in every single one and we're following uh, best practices. Um, but I think the, the culture was the biggest thing, you know, like I was telling Jim last week, I'm a young guy. Um, I'm only 31 years old, but I go to places that have people working there that are twice my age. Um, it is very difficult to, to, to be that person and, and, and have them trust me 
and and know that what I'm trying to do goes against all the things that they've been doing in some respects, but it's better for you, them, and it being better for them makes it better for everyone. It's like the bottom up leadership, you know. I want to I want I don't want to make my boss happy. My boss will be happy by my team being happy uh, with the things that we're doing, and it just goes up, you know. Um, and that's been the case. So what I did and kind of like uh, what I had had sent you and Jim, uh, just some, some brain farts I had that they kind of typed out, but um, it was talk to them, talk to, talk to them, you know, talk to your guy, go and, and see what your electrician is about. No, I, I get it. He's an electrician. Great. But what is he about? What matters to him? You know, is he one of those guys who just wants overtime? Is he one of those guys that wants to balance his life? Is he one of those guys that's just money driven? You know, what makes him tick? What is he about? And do it to everybody. It takes time. You have to set aside the, the daily grind and make time to go and talk to these people. Um, and I have, shoot, I don't know. I have probably nine direct reports and then I have under them maybe 50 indirect reports. Um, but it takes time, man. And I learned what they value. Um, I didn't, you know, Jim has had a much more structured strategic approach than I did, uh, which I'm going to steal from you. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, I, uh, I just started gathering these things, you know, what, 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 what matters, you know, time, money, um, safety. Uh, and then I started taking that information and, sitting down with the groups and individual locations and saying, Hey, you know that you hate, you hate being here on the weekend, right? Yes. I hate it. My wife hates it. The kids hate it. I, I hate the uncertainty. I hate all this. I say, well, you know, if we, we do maintenance, we control the variability in ourselves. We can have a better outcome for ourselves. It's, it's, it's directly proportional. Like your, your input to the reliability and maintenance process for the company is directly related to your well-being. You know, um, you don't want to come in here at three in the morning to fix something. I don't want you either because I'm putting you at risk. I'm adding variability to the process and I'm ruining your life. And, you know, I, I don't want to do that because I need you to be you at hundred percent capacity when you're here. And when you're not here, I want you to be that hundred percent capacity for the things that you want to do and not worry about uh, being here. So that's what I did. I attacked the culture first and I'm not going to act like it's a hundred percent perfect because it's not. Um, and it's not going to be perfect, but there are, there are many people in the organization from a maintenance, maintenance side of things that have bought into that and, and were able to show them the fruits of their labor, if you will, you know, just, you know, this pump I was just talking about foundations trashed, uh, no alignment procedure. It's a belt driven, um, pump, you know, all these things, we get it back to the shop and I'm showing them piece by piece. Look at the belt wear. Ah, okay. The belt wear is, is contributing to the, you know, it's the belt is like this because the alignment is not right. Oh, we keep destroying the packing in the pumps. Well, because we're tightening them right away when you need them to run for a while. You know, I, I just started drawing similarities and conclusions to the things that are causing them mentally to not be the person they want to be in the maintenance program. Um, that was the first thing I did. 
the CMMS was a whole other animal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, uh, that one, I just, I had to be the champion of it. And um, I, I spent four days a week traveling uh, for almost a year. Um, and again, I'm also a human, so that stresses my, my life as well. Um, but someone had to be that champion and, um, that's the CMMS is really about having a champion and, and making sure that you constantly overtop that process. And like Jim and I talked about, you know, who, who has capabilities and certain criteria to make changes and do things within the system and things like that. But, um, I would say we all know it. culture was the big one. And, and that, that's what I did, man. I just, I started linking people's life needs and wants and mental capacities to how it, affects them you know everyone everyone is a dollar sign in this industry you know everything's a dollar sign um but you know not not having manning not having people to do the jobs i, mean, I don't care about your dollar sign at all if no one's there to do the job you don't have anything you know and jim is going to elaborate way better than i could but you're stressing these people are they even going to want to be around is there anything you can do is there anything you can do to make it right you know, um, but fortunately, I've found success in in um, in that type of thought process. It's really linking them to the fundamentals of why maintenance and reliability are so important to them. Not me, not the company, not the bottom. But that's all. That's all going to happen, right? <laughs> the natural progression; those things will all fall in line. But fundamentally, they need to be linked to that process. They need to. Why, man? Why is it so important? And if you ask anybody who works for me, I never shut up about that whole thing. It's like, this happened because this. And what's the biggest variable? And the guy will say, Brian, you always say us. I'm like, yes, we are. Like, if we don't have procedures, we don't have tasks, we don't, you know, we're not looking after each other fundamentally as people in our role as maintenance people, we, you lose. I don't care how smart you are. I, I, I don't care what you are. You know, it, does, it doesn't matter. So... Sorry, I got on a little tangent there, but it's, uh, I think it's rad. <laughs> that's part of the show. You're allowed to go on tangents. No, I love it. And I, I think that's one of the things, like you, you mentioned tackling culture first, but you, like, I don't, to be honest, I don't like saying that because, I mean, I like the way you did it, but I don't like saying attacking culture because for, I think a lot of people listening, they think like, oh man, it's going to be like, like when we had Michelle on, long time ago it was like all oh, barbecues and 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 baseball hats and it's like this very amorphous thing but the way that you did it in this very human centric one-on-one type of way where you're looking at their needs like that's something that everybody listening to this can go out and do whether their team is a team of one you have no informal you know you have no direct reports you just go out into the plant and you just say Hey, Jim, how's it going today? What do you like to do? Blah, blah, blah. Like those type, type of conversations, literally anybody can do anytime. It, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't require, it's not a, it's not a skill. I mean, I would say depending on your outcome, you know, it is a skill, but it's really easy to walk up to somebody and say, Hey man, you know, you're working on this, this engine. That's yeah, sweet, man. What's the problem? You know, they tell you, Hey, you know, just last week we had a similar issue. You know, let's 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 talk about it. You know, let's let's uh, what was the issue? Oh, Bill Bill worked all day Saturday, and they called him in Sunday. Is the engine, you know, and he mistimed it. 
or he, you know, he didn't torque uh, something, you know, it's like, well, man, well, that's a, that's a real problem, isn't it? You know, we need to think about these guys. When you think about the, the environments that they're in and um, I, I hear you now I'm looking back, like, yeah, I'm going to change your culture. Like it's going to be different a hundred percent, you know, like, no, nah, it's, you're right. It's not like that, but uh, you just got to be honest and upfront and you have to give them your time, you know, time is everything like the time you would give yourself to to do a, a, a failure analysis on something to save money is the same time you should put into that one guy who could be extremely beneficial to your organization if he just knew how valuable he was as a human and then him being valuable as a human makes him a valuable maintainer love it jim how about you what do you think um, fantastically said, uh, Brian, that was great. Um, I'll give you a little different spin for me. Uh, I take the, the maintenance and reliability approach from a different, from a complete company standpoint at this point in my life, because of all the things that I've encountered in, and kind of the, uh, methodology I use for my own practice in my workplace. Um, I'm a believer that we have to link unknowns to known and we need to understand that reliability in our business again is no different application to equipment and processes as it is to people let me give you an example okay sometimes i'll give you the reader's digest condensed version because again to train is to link an unknown to a known everyone on this podcast or in this webinar has a vehicle a car correct we all do when your car, you get into your car, your car's capability versus your desired outcome is different. The capability is much higher than the outcome that you're looking for. You drive down the road in Canada, we have kilometers, you have miles an hour, so on. So if you can get 70 miles an hour and we're doing 120 kilometers an hour, our vehicles are capable of producing much faster speeds than that. It's fair to say, correct? So the vehicle's capability is much higher. When we hire human beings in and we bring people in, employees, whether it's maintenance, engineering, managers, uh, whomever, we want to have a desired outcome for that person being employed for us in a company. But their capability is much higher. Now, go back to the vehicle. When you have a piece of equipment or a vehicle and you buy it, you have a specific outcome. You got the color, you want it to go so fast, you want to have a certain sound, your horsepower, mileage, gas mileage, so on and so forth. The minute you put your finger or your hand on the door handle, you are now applying stress to that vehicle. When you open the door, there's stress on a hinge. When you pull the door handle, you have stress on the mechanism. You sit in the seat, you put stress on the springs. You put the key in the ignition, all those things, starting the engine, so on and so forth, you start applying stress, just as we would with equipment in a plant, just as we do when we hire people and we put them on a process line. Now, we start driving that, that uh, truck or car or whatever down the road. All these extra applied stresses come in place. We have tires uh, that are, are wearing on the, are subjected to the road conditions. We have environment, we have speeds, we have bearings that are under stress, gearboxes under stress, belts, so on and so forth. Even us as, as people driving could be under stress if we're in stop-go traffic, per se. 
Those same stresses, though, are the same stresses we put on people again in our workplaces. Now, as I told you, a vehicle's capability is greater than our, our uh, desire for what we want it to do. But that capability and that desire have a bit of a gap in between. And our job in maintenance and reliability is to maintain that gap, to maintain that resistance to the, all that applied stress we put in place. If we don't take care of our cars and we don't change the oil, we don't change the tires, we don't maintain it, what happens to the capacity of that vehicle? It starts to deteriorate, it starts to diminish, but our desire doesn't change. We still wanna go 70 miles an hour down the road, but our vehicles are starting to uh, feel the condition of that. And when that condition and that capacity drops to a point where it's just above the fact that that machine can go 75 miles an hour max and then trying to maintain it at 70 miles an hour, it ain't gonna happen. What do you think is gonna happen to the machine? It's gonna quit, you're gonna have failure. Well, imagine when you're in a plant and now we bring all these people in and whether it's maintenance, whether it's management, whether it's uh, a production person, it doesn't matter. We subject them to workplace. We start subjecting them to uh, pressure, supplied stress, per se. We know their capabilities are higher than applied stress, but what do we do? We throw them into positions and we don't give them proper training. And I'm telling you, you're all gonna, you're all gonna uh, probably have a lot of, uh, a list as long as mine of all these things that happen. So you put a person in place, improper training. How many of you have seen that in place? What I mean by improper training is, it's not a see here, touch approach. It's, nah, nah, there's, I done it. Hey, this is how you put the widget in. I need you to do 10, goodbye, see ya. No mentorship. Uh, there's the stress of learning a new job, let alone being held accountable by, Rob, what you say, metrics and KPIs that are beating people over the head because they need to get it done. You have the stresses of uh, constant equipment issues for maintenance. I'm a brand new guy and all of a sudden I'm, I'm sent out to do a breakdown, uh, diagnose a breakdown. And what's the first question that's asked before you even get to the site? How long is it gonna take? All these applied stresses on us, all these applied stresses over and over and over again. Now tell me, how many companies work on the resisting that applied stress? by maintaining that person's capacity, by giving them proper training, by showing them the victories, by being a mentor to them and a coach and sitting with them till they get it, telling them it's gonna be okay. I don't see a lot of that happening. And so when a person's capability or capacity gets to a point where it matches the, the, the um, applied stress, what do you think happens? And don't forget, human beings don't just have applied stress from a workplace. A machine and a, and a vehicle, they stop at rest. They're only applied whether in the, in the building. Humans go home. Applied stress to sick children, applied stress to financial issues, mental issues, addiction, so on and so forth. And so when our capacity drops to that point and we have not had that emotional bank account or physical bank account replenished over and over again to maintain that capacity, what happens? our outcomes are terrible. People quit, people get suicidal, anxiety, addictions, so on and so forth, don't show up for work. 
Now, take that and multiply that on a bigger level to a company. Companies that, that are uh, in trouble right now or they're only worried about the bottom line. How many companies have to work overtime to meet their demands because of those issues? Now, a company's capacity to meet the customer's needs and its ability to meet those needs are almost, there is no gap. So any little bump in the road, which would have been, uh, you know, a little bump in the road in your car, if you, if you maintain it well, would have been just like a little, just a sight little, it's like getting a mosquito bite. Now that mosquito bite feels like somebody chopped your arm off. And that's the thing I get to. I look at the corporation as a whole and I say, okay, what are we going to do to maintain the capacity of our people? I don't care what position you are. I've had people on the floor and I'm always telling them, hey, how are you? How's your family? So on and so forth. It's about conditioning and about building that reserve in our people so that our people can do the job and, and produce the outcomes we're looking for. If we don't do this, the means that justify the end of doing it the other way by worrying about that bottom line and that dollar value, it's not going to happen. This is the problem I see with leadership. We need to get away from the boss, the directors, titles. We need to be titled as leaders, mentors, coaches. We need to go out and help people become better. Clive, uh, Clive Lloyd talks about psychological safety. That's not about safety. I think his message is a bigger message. I think he's telling us that, hey, we need to create a safe environment. And what's a safe environment? What do people need? We're always looking outside of ourselves. How do you want to be treated? Do you want to be treated and yelled at? Do you want to be disrespected? No, you don't. You, or else you wouldn't, be, you, you, know, you wouldn't be talking right now on this podcast. You want something more of yourself. And when you're talking to people, you have to treat them like you want to, get, you want to be treated. And some people you have to ask, some people have to tell, of course, but it's about, it's about uh, building people up, building that emotional bank account to make them handle all the stresses that come along, training them, teaching the part of a team, not be uh, told what to do all the time. Give them the ability to come up with solutions themselves, right or wrong, who cares, as long as they're thinking. And we can, we can mentor them and get them to a new level of thinking. And if they do it in the workplace, they're going to do it at home. So we need to change the way we're thinking. We need a great reckoning in our industry to understand that it's people that make things happen. And we need to do this in examples that, that make sense. You can't, you know, we focus on these habits. They always say, you know, I, I got a bad habit. Okay, focus on your bad habit. The likelihood is you're not going to get very far by focusing on a bad habit. If you work on creating new habits, you want to choke the bad habit out. It's like your yard, unknown to unknown. If you spend all your time pulling out the weeds and you do nothing for the rest of your grass, you don't fertilize, you don't give it water, you're just going to have a gaping hole. And what's going to fill that gaping hole? That bad habit again. But if you work on the stewardship of your grass and you water it and you cut it to a certain height to save its integrity and you fertilize it, and you make sure that you're pulling out these little weeds as you go along. What happens is the new habit, the grass itself, will choke out the bad habits and replace them. That's where we need to, in my opinion, need to get to. So all these, all these uh, issues that we're having have to be focused from a different perspective, from a higher level. And it has to come from, from taking effort in, in uh, bringing people to a new level of thinking. 
Give them stewardship. Stephen Covey talked about this years ago. He did that the uh, analogy of his son or the the um, the story about his son and the, and the green grass. I don't know if you've ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but if you do, you'll know the story. And that's what he's getting to, stewardship. But how do you get people to have stewardship? How do you get people to come to your workplace and want to come to the workplace? They want to be there. They want to make a difference because if they can make a difference in their workplace, they're going to make a difference at home as well. And right now, like I said, I think we're in a great reckoning. I think a lot of the people that are on this panel, I've heard them speak, and I think we're all on the same page. It isn't about the reliability. I'm not worried about the PM program rate at this particular juncture. I'm not worried about collecting the, the data in that sense because I can do, that's the easy part. Giving people a sense of why they need to do it is the important part. I'll give you a success story in victory logs. A victory log is a very important thing for people to, to use in their life. And I, I was introduced to it and I do it every day. Small little victories. There's a magical balance between um, uh, negative and positive reinforcement. It isn't a 50-50 thing. What they're saying is you five, need five small little victories to overcome that one negative impact that you have. So imagine going to your maintenance people, and that's what I'm working on now with this corporation, is get these small victory boards up in the maintenance department and in production. Something that says, hey, you guys hit that target. Yeah, it took you a little longer, but you got there. That's the main thing. You got it. And with those kind of victories, those are things that are going to, to empower our people. And not only that, they'll go home and they'll look at the little things. We need to get away from fixed mindsets, and you'll know this, Rob, fixed mindset, high achiever mentality to high performance growth mindset. Those things are amazing. And the difference between the two, between a high performer and a high achiever, is the style of believer. And you have to, have, you have to ask yourself, what do you want to do in your life? Do you want to keep looking at the negative things and overlook the positive things that you've done? Or do you really want to look at your victories and say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I did get somewhere today. I finished today and hey, we got those PMs. We got 60% of our PMs done today. That's fantastic. I can tell you a victory I did starting last Friday. I'll give you a good example. The goal I have for this corporation, and we're two, let me recursor this for a minute. We're two decades into the millennium and I have a corporation that still can't even put time into a CMMS system, okay? So I go, that's okay. And I said, okay, this isn't about the time in the system. This is about creating the habit and teaching people why it's important. So we created these high-level KPIs. And the reason we created these high-level KPIs was not to get the results back from because KPIs can be deceiving. It's a, a evasive truth is what I call it. The whole point of the KPI was to get the mentality in place to get people to get the habit of understanding why it's important to do it and put them in an autopilot so that they know that the, the importance is there and I don't have to ask them to put this time in. The plant that I started in, last Friday we had a discussion with the maintenance people. There were five maintenance guys and they only put eight hours in, ten hours in, five people. And I measured the percentage of this. Since our talk last Friday, there's been a 45% increase in the data that's been put in. And it wasn't anything more than showing people and, and, and explaining to people the importance and how important it is to them. Because everybody is a, what is it for me? What's in it for me, right? 
And we're all that way. We can say all we want. We have to have needs met also. You can't keep giving and not receive or you'll die as a human being. So it worked. And that is a perfect example. As small as it is, that is a massive victory for this company moving forward because we're setting the models of excellence. In the world of neurolinguistics, modeling and limbic synchrony or rapport is massive for us. And having good intentions is a massively powerful tool. And that is what we're missing in a lot of what we do when we're doing reliability and, uh, and maintenance and equipment. And, and again, I'm not talking about just reliability and maintenance as a, as a fixed entity. I'm talking about a plant in its entirety. You do the same thing at home. You brush your teeth, time-based PM. You take a bath, it's PM. You don't want to think, so that's the point. So we have to take those things and we have to be able to take an unknown to a known and teach people that it's all the same. It's relative. When people are, are when we're shown something that makes sense to us, then we'll make a change. If it doesn't make sense to us, we're fighting. We're always, we're, that's why, that's why people write tons of books. You'll get tons of books on reliability maintenance. You'll get tons of books on diets. You'll get tons of books on self-help because everybody comes with a different approach. Find the person that meets your need mentally and speaks to you, and then you will change your mindset. Because if you don't know how it works and you don't know what, what makes you groove, what makes you tick, you're going to have a hard time being a better leader than you are right today. And that's basically in a nutshell of where I am and what I'm trying to accomplish. And I think there's plenty of room for it. But you know this, Brian, because you are implementing it yourself. And Rob already, I'm, I'm, I don't have to speak to Rob. He's, he's got this figured out big time. You know, you know actually, Jim, I, I think you, and as much as you said you were disagreeing with Brian, I think you're actually aligned. Like, I think, see, I think when you're talking about ability to withstand stress and the ability to, like, where you are on that, basically that delta between your performance capacity and where you're, where you're at, that's all about, how much your needs are being met. And if your needs aren't being met, then that Delta gets real small, real quick. And where Brian is at and where Brian's approaching is in the needs met space. And, and Brian, where you're talking about, you know, these people who come to work and they want to get money and they want to get overtime and they want to get that stuff. That's not a need. Like there's, there's some point where, you know, 75,000 or whatever the research says above that, you know, basically finances and a need. And, and just, I'll give you my experience. The, the need that I was trying to fill by increasing the amount of money I was going to make or whatever that was, was basically was, I felt like it was an ability for me to get seen. The more money I had, right. the more value I had as a person. That's right. And so there's just a few connections there. And the last thing I just want to say before we get into plugs, because we're almost done, is what you talked about, Jim, about psychological safety. So Clive Lloyd, he's a psychologist based out of Australia. He does a lot of work with safety, psychological safety. The reason I think it, he, you tied it to safety safety is, is basically like that's what he works in. But psychological safety is about the trust and the culture that you're able to speak right. up when things aren't going the right way or when you feel something is wrong. And mm-hmm. it's that, that trust and that safety that you're not going to get actions taken against you, whether that's, you know, you're getting fired, whether you're disciplined, whatever that's the case. 
that trust and that psychological safety applies whatever industry it is it doesn't matter if you sit in an office where basically there's no safety issues possible it's it's across the board yep exactly so we're we're basically out of time so brian let's start with you do you have anything to plug and if people are listening to this like how can they connect with you to hear more um well uh i am on um LinkedIn, of course, my, uh, my company email is on there. I don't know if my, my company phone number is on there, but, um, you can always email me. And, um, again, I, I'll, I'll talk to anybody, man. I, I'm easy. Um, and yeah, I mean, feel free. I, I love talking to people. Uh, I'm not one of those people who, who claims to have the answers. Uh, I just, uh, I, I just, I take the, the responsibility of having so many people in that structure that I'm in um, looking to me uh, in some capacity, whether it be their direct boss or not, to make it right, to make the maintenance space right for them. And, uh, you know, it can be, you know, something very simple as uh, autonomy, like Jim had touched on, you know, it's huge. People, people want to, they want to make decisions. They want to, they want to uh, to have a say and to, to own something. And uh, I use that. I play that. I want to say play. I, I utilize that nature with people um, very often, giving them a, the freedom to, to present their ideas, the things that they, that they, they view could be beneficial. And then we work together to, to, to hash out the things that are truly going to benefit everyone. Um, but, uh, you know, Jim, you had mentioned about the, the little wins. Um, and it's, it's funny you say that we have a mile, we, I call them the milestones. I always go to the guys and say, you know, what are your daily milestones? What do you, what do you want to complete today? Um, and we, we don't have it recorded. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're always, uh, excited to share their milestone to the day. You know, if a guy's rebuilding a, a pump or something and I go I'll walk out in the shop like hey you know what do you think you're gonna get that thing together today or are you gonna you know we're gonna go in tomorrow you know of course I'm not I'm not judging or or putting any pressure on them you know it's just a friendly thing but they love coming back at the end of the day and be like hey man got that thing adjusted it's together we're ready to put it in tomorrow you know we're gonna test it everything and um, you can see it and you give them the autonomy to to be their own master in that in that one job um, but anyway, yeah, so um, email, um, I'm down to talk about anything. Uh, I, I love mobile equipment. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, I do a lot of, uh, a lot of mobile equipment maintenance, uh, write a lot of maintenance. Uh, I wrote these, I created these things just real quick um, called what I call them active inspections. And uh, it started as being on the waterfront, you don't have a lot of time ship schedule is very very rough so sometimes you know you're all aware you push off a pm you know PM might consume too much time well over time i developed uh, an active inspection which is generated per machine type and it touches on all the key safety and reliability centered uh components of that machine that can be checked and, and verified within a short period of time so that if you don't have the time to complete a full pm or something like that you can deploy this active which is relevant 
checks to this piece of machinery so that it can go into operation with some degree of certainty um, that everything's been accounted for. And it's very non-intrusive. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's just, just a lot of cool stuff, man. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm trucking away right now. I'm, I'm uh, in the process of rehabbing a ZPMC 6,000 ton per hour stacker reclaimer. Um, we're going to be putting a slew bearing in it. Uh, it's a 500 ton uh, jacking system and the bearings 20 feet across. And, you know, so um, if anybody has any questions about anything, man, I, I, I like to think I'm, I'm fundamentally well-rounded, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. No, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Brian. And honestly, like having this conversation, you're a breath of fresh air. Like it's definitely, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, we need more people like you in industry. That's all I have to say. I'm trying, man. I'm trying to, like I said, I got engineers that work for me and maintenance managers and I, I try to put my thumb on them whenever I can and just make them hear my rant and understand where I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Jim, what do you have to plug? Where can people find you? Well, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me at this particular juncture, and I'll leave it as that. Uh, my only plug to it is uh, I, I encourage people to continue to listen to your podcast. Um, a lot of great people on here to give us uh, direction. Uh, Clive Lloyd, as I said, uh, psychology safety or psychological safety, fantastic. It's uh, something people should embrace and understand. Um, you, Calvin Williams has a great program too. Great person to see, to listen to. Jeff Naylor, so on and so forth. Susan Hobson, uh, Bob Latino, so on. I could go on a big list. I, I love it. I'm learning a lot. I'm willing to share whatever I can. Thank you very much for having me on board for this uh, webinar, Brian. You have a you have a great successful career ahead of you, and uh, I applaud you for your thinking. And uh, as I said, uh, you know, it's about people. I'm all about people and people make things happen. And I will continue to be about people. And if somebody wants to have more of a conversation on that kind of topic, fantastic. Rob, I know you have big things coming down the pipe for you. And I know you've been very instrumental. You know that I've been in contact with you. And, and again, for the audience, you need to pay attention to Rob's uh, podcast, Rob's Reliability because there's some bigger, better things coming down the pipe. And I really like it. And Brian, <laughs> thanks again for, for hooking up with me too and having a chance to talk. I'd love to talk more with you. Uh, we have a lot of things in common. And, um, and for the audience as well, I see a lot of people that were on that uh, I've listened to and, uh, and very much honored to be a, been a part of this show. Thank you, Rob. No, thanks yeah. for coming on, Jim. And definitely uh, appreciate the shout out from you. And I appreciate your time today joining us. And yeah, I mean, for me, obviously, if you're listening, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. Go to robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter. There's some bonus stuff in that newsletter that you won't get anywhere else. Also, next week, same time, same place. Well, not same place, different Zoom meeting, but, but same place. Um, we have James Kovacevic, James Novak, and Lucas Marino coming on to talk about spare parts. And then August 12th, same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, we have Susan Hobson, my leadership coach, coming on. And we're going to be talking about high-impact leadership and a lot of the stuff we touched on today. But also, I'll have a special announcement to make that time. So shameless plug on that. Be back here in two weeks. 
So no, I want to put a plug on that. Too. That's right. Jim, Brian, thanks for joining us today. Everybody else who's on or listening, thanks for listening. And I hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Rob's Reliability Project.